everyone, and thanks for tuning in to the Path 11 podcast. I'm your host, April Hanna. And on our show today, we have invited Lisa Smart. I'm really excited about this book. I have read it from the front page to the back, and I have a lot of uh, some personal experiences that I'd like to share with Lisa because a lot of things hit home. And the book that we're going to be talking about is Words at the Threshold, What We Say as We're Nearing Death. And Lisa decodes the symbolism of those last words showing how the language of the dying points the way to a transcendent world beyond our own. She shares the compelling language she has heard and the coherency that emerges in even the most puzzling phrases. She also provides tools for more meaningful communication with loved ones who are at the end of life. And that is just a small snippet of what we're going to talk about today. Mm. But um, Lisa, welcome to our show. Mm, thank you, April. I'd like you to um, begin letting our listeners know how you came across the work of Raymond Moody and then eventually actually worked with him to develop uh, what is called the Finals Words Project, which led into this book. Um, it was a very remarkable and magical journey for me. Uh, when I was 17, I read Life After Life. It came out in 1975. And I remember just reading it with wide eyes as he talked about the near-death experience. And then when I became curious about final words, as I witnessed my father's dying and I had background in linguistics, I just noticed these really remarkable changes in his language. And I just started writing things down. And um and after he passed away and I w was left with many questions about what I had witnessed, I started looking for information and there wasn't much out there. So I found Raymond's book again. And then synchronistically, uh, a few months la later, uh, a friend of my mother's told her that he was going to be teaching with Raymond Moody in Alabama. And um, my mom said, why don't you go in and meet, meet him? And I did indeed. And during that seminar, Raymond started talking about his interest in unintelligible language. That was actually his first field of study. He had a PhD in philosophy and, and was very interested in language. And I thought, oh my, um, what a remarkable coincidence. So he and I began to speak and we had this shared fascination with final words. And, uh, and I've been working really, he's been mentoring me through this process and it's been such, um, such a blessing. He's a remarkable person. I feel very, very fortunate to have had this opportunity. Yeah, when this book came across and was presented to us for the podcast, I thought, this is amazing. This is awesome mm -hmm. because there aren't many people out there writing about this, studying this, um, you know, and I know so many people have questions and um, it was just so synchronistic too. Uh, before we were going to interview you, a, I was speaking to a person, I think a couple of days before we were getting ready to uh, record the interview and she was going through the process of watching her mom slowly die. Mm. And in a moment of clarity, her mother said these words that healed so many things for her oh. in that moment. And yet then kind of like snapped out of it. And, you know, here I am reading your book and I'm like, yes, you have to read this book. This is perfect. <laughs> you know? uh -huh. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so I'm so glad that the book and the research may really resonate with people's lives because that's what that's what research really is all about, right? Is is helping people do that. So fantastic. Thank you for that. Yeah. And I think, you know, if anyone has had the experience of um 
you know, being beside someone that is actively dying, a lot of what you talk about in here, people witness and see. And sometimes it, you know, if you don't really understand what's going on, it could feel a little traumatizing. Like there's a part in the book where, um, you know, how you're giving people tools of maybe just trying to hold the space with the person who is dying and try communicating with them rather than, no, no, you're here right now in the hospital. You know, you're not packing your bags and leaving anywhere. You're not taking a trip. Um, And I know that we're going to get into that a little bit further, but um, it was, it was really great to read. And really, I think anyone that reads this, if you have had the experience of going through um, the dying process with someone, it's going to bring you back to some memories. And it brought me back to when I was a teenager and my great grandmother was dying. Mm-hmm. And we had many, um, many experiences like you described in the book of where she was like, just very um, clear and organized thinking and then reaching out for things, uh, talking about dead relatives showing up, calling out for her mm. baby, you mm. know, not making any sense, having some last request of food. And then we had like a big joke. And then like, I don't know, a day later she died. So, mm. you know, it kind of really um, just triggered a lot of, of, of memories. And then more recently of my aunt passing away, but I was really more in active communication with that whole process. So I'm hoping to share some of those stories as well. But can you tell our listeners, uh, go in depth a little bit more about what the finals, final words project is and how you were getting a better understanding of the communication of people who were dying and hearing stories and things like that from other people? Mm, great. Um, and also, thanks so much for sharing your experiences. It's I just, I haven't, I was speaking to Raymond about this. Raymond, um, you know, he's been studying near-death experiences for, for 40 years, and he still marvels at every account that he hears. And I have the same experience. It's just uh, such a remarkable um the, the accounts are so remarkable. So thank you again for those. Um, but I established the Final Words Project in 2014 um, to better understand the communications of the dying. And no linguist has systematically studied people's final words. And my hope was that through collecting final words and analyzing the language that I might be able to shed light on what happens to consciousness as we die. And I also really wanted to give tools for people so that they can connect more meaningful with their beloveds at end of life. Because as you mentioned, some of the things we hear from the people we love can be scary because they can be seem nonsensical or confusing. And, and I, I, my wish was that through the final words project, I could find the patterns and the tools to help people connect in ways that, that were meaningful. Yes, and I'd like you to go right into that with the patterns that emerge in the language because I found it fascinating. Um, the patterns there, there, there are several of them. First, uh, people start speaking in much more highly metaphoric and symbolic language, and within that category of metaphors, you'll see people speaking of a momentous event. Uh, the big golf tournament is coming or the big art exhibition or the big dance or the big dinner. They start announcing some kind of big event is coming. And oftentimes the things that people announce are closely related to their lives. And people use metaphors that I call them signature metaphors, you know, things that are really connected to the person. So for example, um, dancer Jeffrey Holder, choreographer and dancer Jeffrey Holder, his very final words were, uh, 
arms two, three, turn two, three, swing two, three, down two, three. So the kinds of things that we hear in people's metaphors are things that are closely related to, to their lives. Also, we hear so many metaphors of people traveling, about the bus coming or waiting for the trolley, um, or not having a passport and looking for their passport because they're between countries. So we see lots of metaphorical language. We see much more repetition. For example, um, Steve Jobs' final words that many of us know are, oh, wow, oh, wow, oh, wow. So we hear a lot of um, repetition like that. Uh, it's all in one piece. It's all in one piece. It's all in one piece is, you know, just phrases like that emerge. And then we also see many types of what is called nonsense. I mean, things that would not ordinarily make sense to us. And uh, we have linguistic nonsense where the language, it just is, um, doesn't, just doesn't make sense. So let me give you some examples. I'm going up so I can go down. Grant me half a full measure. Yes, I would like some scrambled eggs, but where would you reappear? So those sentences, really technically, they don't make sense. So we see sentence like, sentences like that. And more frequently, we see what I call situational nonsense, where the sentences make sense. But in our regular, literal, three-dimensional world, they don't make sense in terms of the situation. And let me give some examples. Uh, someone might say, there's a young woman standing at the foot of my bed when there is no one that we see. You know, the, those of us who are living do not see it. Or someone might say, oh, my God, it's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And stare at a wall. And there's they're in a hospital wall. And then the person may say, look at the forest, the beautiful forest. Someone else might say, can you hear those bells ringing? And we don't hear the bells. So technically, those are forms of nonsense because they're talking about things that we don't share. We don't share in their um, perceptions. But, and there's also something called prepositional shift where people start speaking in very interesting ways about space. I've got to go down there. I have to go down. I've got to get down to earth. Help me. I'm on top now, moving on top. But people are, are lying in bed, almost motionless, and yet they're talking about experiences of movement. So that's prepositional shift. And I'll just give you one more pattern that I found. Um, it's called hybrid sentences. And those are where, um, you know, again, technically nonsense, because someone might say something like, get my camera. I need to take a picture of this. And so the camera is rooted in this reality. Right, get me my camera. But the picture of this, we don't know what they're talking about. And so that is the unseen reality. So these hybrid sentences are like people have one foot in the seen reality and another foot in the unseen. Let me give you one more example. Um, I better get dressed now. I need to go home. And referring, of course, to some other home that, that you know we may not perceive. So that's kind of a quick overview of some of the patterns that, that I found. Yeah. And I love the examples that you gave too of different people's um, experiences of what they heard by the person's bedside, because that really helps. And I think, you know, kind of reson can resonate with people to try to remember again, if they've had an experience uh, being by the bedside of somebody who was passing. And can you talk a little bit more about 
maybe what you and Raymond Moody are finding is actually happening in between these dimensions? Mm, wow, that's that's a great question. You know, honestly, you know, I'm a linguist and I follow language. Language is the thing that I study because it gives clues about what's going on with consciousness. And, you know, I don't know that I could say, and I don't know if Raymond would even say that he could tell you what exactly is going on, but we can tell you what what is compelling and mysterious. So for example, let me get more example, you know, more clear about that. One of the things we see at end of life is something called terminal lucidity, which you had talked about a little bit, where people might be completely unresponsive. And then there'll be this path, then right before people die, they'll have this lucidity for a window of time after being completely unresponsive. So, you know, it seems that something is operating uh, which we might call consciousness, right? Something that's operating that is beyond the brain. Because how can it that people be completely unresponsive? And if you look at their brains, uh, you know, there's just so much um, destruction or degradation as, as people approach death. And yet people are having visions and, and active, almost like dreams uh, many times. So, these the things that people say and see suggest to me and uh, and also to Raymond who's done you know much more research than I have there is something that seems to exist beyond the brain and you know we don't know what that is but we know that there is something um, it, it it the brain is not the seat of consciousness when the brain goes it's clear that there's something else still alive. So, for example, there's a woman who did extensive research in people with comas. And what she found, for those who survived and were, came, were able to talk about it, is that 70% of them reported that while they were in a coma, they had much more awareness than many of us would ever think. And what is that awareness? By all accounts, their bodies are, are you know, they're serious trouble in their bodies. Their bodies are falling apart, technically. And yet there's something alive still. So that's the great mystery. That's the great mystery. Yeah, I remember a part in the book where you were kind of describing that, where that lucidity had come in, and these people might be on a bunch of different medications. And I, I believe you were also saying that, you know, some of this isn't psychosis. You know, these, these oh, are people yes. hallucinating, even though there may be medications that are being pumped through them, but it's really, it's really much more in something bigger that's happening. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I interviewed a lot of hospice nurses, and what they said is there is really a distinction between the hallucinations that people have that might be closely connected to medications, because, you know, there's no doubt that medications affect people's experience. And then there are the visions. And the difference is, uh, many report, is that during hallucinations, oftentimes, people see things that agitate them. You know, they, they, the, the, the hallucinations are not necessarily pleasant. And their language is more cryptic. They do not speak as much in complete sentences. And however, the visions, one, is people can, can be in both worlds at once. So they can turn to their daughter or son and say, oh my God, there's Earl. You know, maybe if the person's husband was Earl who passed away before, she may say, oh my God, Earl is here. And be able to move back and forth between the visions 
and 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 this this reality, and so it seems that visions that are connected more to medication, excuse me, uh, hallucinations that are connected more to medications and visions, they have very different qualities. And one of the most powerful qualities about these end of life visions is that they really seem to bring people comfort. And because, you know, dying is not easy. I mean, you know, it, there's a period that people go through often where there's it's it, there's a kind of an anxiety and fear associated, of course, right? Because most of us, the dying is a scary process for many. And yet then there's this transition that often occurs when people start having these visions that bring tremendous comfort to them. So... Um, so anyway, that, those are the kinds of differences that I've heard between the hallucinations that are more connected to meds and then the visions that seem to be connected to something much bigger. Yes, thank you. I think that's helpful and important for people to hear. Um, I was a hospice volunteer for oh, wow. about, yeah, a year and a half or so oh, around wow. the time when Mike and I were uh, doing our documentary, The Path Afterlife, because in that oh. documentary, we're questioning it, what what's happening. So I wanted to learn a little bit more about death. So I, you know, decided to become a hospice volunteer to just oh. be, be around it more and, you know, to also get a sense of what this was like and to be with people at that time of transition. And there was something in your book that, again, triggered a memory that I had had. And so as I'm, you know, working with the clients that I was assigned to, there were quite a few clients who had gone into that space where they were just sleeping and they mm -hmm. weren't, weren't really conscious and I wasn't there to see them when they were. And some of the things that we talked about, like they would say very, if they were conscious and awake, they would say really weird things. And, you know, just interesting to see that that's a pretty common pattern. But then uh, what I started to do as I was sitting there working with the people who were sleeping, is I started to communicate to them in thought form. Uh. And just begin to ask them questions. Because now, I, you know, I'm kind of experimenting a little bit with this, with what I'm learning. And mm -hmm. I believe there was a story in your book that shared something similar where I would speak to them and just kind of say, hey, you know, what's going on? You know, is there anything that you're struggling with? And, you know, just wondering if there was any comfort that I could bring. And, of course, you know, part of me feels like I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> and, and then the other part was like, wow, I was kind of getting information. And I had quite a few of the patients mm -hmm. let me know when they were going to pass away and how many oh. days. And sure enough, when I would go back, because I would uh, volunteer once or twice a week, and with these certain patients, they would say, it's going to be about three days now. Oh. And I would say, okay, well, if I'm not back, you know, I, you know, wish you well. And again, all through thought form. And I had about five accounts where it was accurate. Oh, oh my, I would love to maybe, um, if you would be willing sometime off, you know, privately to hear some of those accounts, because I'm actually thinking that might be my next bit of research is exactly what you're talking about. Because one of the things that I discovered um, is I spoke to so many nurses who, I shouldn't say so many, but many, more than I would have ever expected, who are kind of incognito because in the medical field, really, it's not acceptable to say, you know, I have this telepathic experience with a <laughs> patient, right? But what blew me away is how many, and people you know, would consider 
um, you know, conservative nurse, you know, again, very down to earth folks, right? Um, in conservative medical environments who would say exactly the same thing, April. I mean, they had the same experience of beginning to, and one nurse for 30 years, she said, the, the doctor she works with always go to her to say, you know, what do you think is the prognosis? And she was having these telepathic communications. Of course, she did not tell the docs that they were telepathic. but And she was so accurate. And the doctors came to rely upon her, but they thought it was because of her medical training. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, it's really fascinating. And this was one of the biggest surprises for me in this research yeah. um, about that. So, yeah, your experience is, is fascinating to me. And it's also... Um, not unique. It's yeah. really intriguing. Yeah. Yeah. Which was nice validation, you know, in reading this book and seeing some of those shared experiences that people had had. Um, one of the things that I'd like to also talk about is the significance of numbers. Yes. Yes. Um, well, first of all, you, in your example, you use three days. And one of the things I've noticed is it seems like a lot of times when people are uh, announce that they're going to be passing, whether they do it verbally or telepathically, oftentimes it's three days. So that's just kind of interesting. That's something I'd like to research more. Um, but also the number three, the numbers three and four come up a lot. And, um, People, it seems what I've read is that four is a number of completion, which makes sense, right? You think of four points, and it's oftentimes a number of completion. So many times uh, people, when they're at the threshold, will announce that there's some kind of threesome, like a poker game or a golf game or something, and that they need a fourth, and that that person is the fourth, is going to complete the foursome. And also people talk a lot about boxes, and as we know, at least, you know, one dimension boxes are four corners, right? So um, th those were the numbers that reoccurred the most. And H came up a few times, too. So, uh, yeah, it was, it was interesting. And I, and I feel like um, I, would, I hope to build my sample and keep collecting data because I have a sense that more numbers are going to emerge in different ways. And I, and I, and I look forward to finding out more about that, too. Yeah, and what is the sample size of um, the accounts that you've gotten for the Final Words project? You know, it's still relatively small, I think, but enough to the patterns definitely emerge. So I have now, I say in the book, 1,500 utterances, and utterances range from a few sentences to really long passages. So I, I took them by utterances. Um, so I have 1,500, but I'm up to about 2,000 now because I've been collecting. So, and it represents probably now about 150 people. Okay. So and it's, yeah. Have you found that as you're doing more interviews that more stories and accounts are coming in? Would you like to encourage our listeners, um, if they do have anything like this, to, I mean, we'll, we'll let them know where they could reach you. But are you looking, are you actively looking for more? Absolutely. I would be so grateful because, you know, the more information I get, the more, you know, as I speak on radio and as I do book signings and speak with people, um, it seems that most of the patterns that ha we've discerned are resonate and are pretty on target. But I, 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 I just, well, first of all, I'm just deeply curious and I want to keep learning. And I also want to make sure that as I speak to people that I'm giving information that's completely spot on. Right. I feel a responsibility. And the more data I have, the more accurate I'll be. So I would be so grateful for any accounts 
Um, and no matter how strange or bizarre they seem. And also getting the really nonsensical language, the stuff that just completely like, what the heck is that? Um, I really want to begin analyzing what the patterns of nonsense are mm. uh, and see what we might find. Some of the patterns we're finding is paradoxical language. Um, like give me a half a full measure where people say things that are contradictory. And that really corresponds closely with the kind of paradoxical language we hear in near-death experience. People have near-death experiences come back and say something like, I've never been, I never felt as alive as when I was dead, right? Which makes technically no sense, but it's a paradoxical statement. So, um, I'm, I just, I, I would just be so grateful for any, any, any examples or accounts that people could share with me. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Um, I'd also like you to uh, explain to the listeners, if anyone out there is listening to this podcast and currently right now there is someone, you know, in their life that is actively dying, what is the best way for somebody to sit with a person who is dying and support them and hold that space for them, actively listen and actively engage in a way that is supportive? I think that the most important thing is to just assume that you have entered a sacred territory. You know, just have that as the working assumption and that what you're hearing and what you're seeing is sacred because it can seem so scary, right? So for many of us, not all of us, but for many. So, and part of that is when you hear someone speak, just validate the reality. You know, when, when, if someone says something like, I need my passport, um, yes, you need your passport. What can I do to help? And engage in conversations when there is language that are, truly validating and do not question or deny the person's reality and ask questions, you know, Oh, you know, what, where do you, what, what do you need your passport for? You know, and what can I do to help? And then, and, and really it's just so simple. It's almost like, you know, when children are small and they may talk in the ways that seem like imagination, just meet them where they are and keep an open heart. And what you also said about people when they're unresponsive, assume that people on some level can hear you. And, and and come from that assumption as well. And also, you might want to keep a final words journal. I mean, I did that, and I found by writing down the final words, so many insights came. And I also was really able to enter into my father's reality and was able to start tracking his metaphors and using the symbols and metaphors of his experience as a way to connect with him. Yeah, and um, kind of talking again about speaking to people telepathically, you gave a great example in the book, and it was um, these researchers, Jeffrey Lee and Jean Esther, about how parents and their young children communicate telepathically, which just made so much sense to me about the language between parents and, you know, newborn babies and understanding what their needs are. And there is no language except for crying and fussing. Exactly. And, you know, I don't know how many times we've heard parents say, well, I just knew she needed a diaper change. Or I just knew, you know, that that people really it's not just the cries, but people seem to know. And it, you know, I really have the sense that we may begin with a telepathic language and that's how we end. And, you know, everyone who has a near death experience, everyone I've interviewed and all the people that Raymond has um, interviewed is they talk about 
in the quote afterlife, there is a telepathic language. People do not communicate the way we do, right, through our mouths. It's not a spoken language. And it's heart to heart and mind to mind. And, you know, I really wonder if that's how we begin. We come into this world with the capacity to articulate and understand 800 phonemes, those are sounds, right? We come in with this huge capacity. And then as we, with every day that we're here on this planet, that reduces to the number of sounds that are our native language. So in English, that's 44. So by the time we're six months or so, we really now have reduced the range of what we can identify and, and produce in terms of sound. But it seems like we begin with this vast capability. And, you know, when we end, I hear these stories of telepathic communication. We even hear about this after people die, that loved ones hear their beloveds, right? So, um, you know, it's just a, it's a, it's just a proposition on my, you know, my part. But it really seems that this is what happens. And I've heard stories. There was one remarkable story from someone I interviewed, whose son had a degenerative disease, and over many years he lost the ability to speak, and she became more and more telepathic as he lost the ability to speak, and he finally passed when he was sixteen. So there really seems to be a relationship between our bodies' um, capabilities physically and uh, the ability to communicate telepathically. Um, so yes, it's, anyway, yes, the connection seems very clear to me through this research. Yeah, now in, in this book, it seems to be that some of the um, utterances and data that you've collected is more of people who are nearing the end of life. But I'm also mm -hmm. curious to know, because I, I have a story, in, another story in particular of, um, a person that I know was dating uh, this gentleman and they were kind of going through some rough times and breaking up and kind of getting back together and then broke up. And he had sent her a text the day that he passed away in a tragic mm. car accident. And mm. the text was, if this is the end, then goodbye. Wow. Um, and, mm. and then he ended up dying within, you know, 12, 12 hours later or so, you know, that same day. So you know, and we've talked a lot about it and there's, you know, the way that she can kind of make sense of it too. And I have heard some other stories like that is where maybe people who aren't dying of a terminal illness or a long-term disease or, you know, 80, 90 years old and in the hospital, if there is some sort of sense of knowing and phrases and things that people will say that, um, kind of indicate in the moment, as we're living, we don't, we don't know that, but then when they pass away, that there's something more to that. Absolutely. I mean, that's another thing that became clear is people do seem to have a very clear premonition, these very clear premonitions. And, um, there is another a story in the book that is similar to the one you just shared where, um, a a teenage daughter, you know, those magnetic letters that you can put on the um, refrigerator or they're actually for magnetic poems. Yeah. Yes. And um, she put something on the refrigerator before she was going to go drive to see her boyfriend. And I don't have the exact phrases with me, um, but it was something like, I'm going to quiet infinity or something. And again, the, the, I don't have the exact phrase, but it, it was really 
it seemed like a premonition, and, and the daughter drove to see her boyfriend and, and died tragically in a car accident. And when her mother saw that, it, it was just um, so eerie and powerful. And the daughter also left behind a beautiful poem that really seemed to contain hints that she knew she was going to be passing on some very unconscious level. And I think one of the things I've really come to feel through this research is that we we do have maybe a predetermined number of years here. Um, from several samples, uh, you know, people as they're dying may have conversations with an unseen and say things like, oh, I know, I know, we agreed on 22 years or things similar to that. Oh, okay, okay, I know, it's time to go. And you wonder, or I wonder, who are they speaking to? And Oftentimes, this idea that there's an agreed amount of time um, emerges. And also, of course, in your death experiences, over and over again, we hear about people being told, of course, it's time to go back, your work is not done, or they're given a choice and they can make the choice. So um, based on how much work they have to do here on this planet or the lessons they have to learn. So uh, it's, it, you know, for me, it, it, this research has given me this sense of kind of comfort and relief, because if, if it's already predetermined how many years I have, then I can just relax, you know? <laughs> you know, there's this kind of relaxation that comes with that, because, um, but it is, it, it's, it's really fascinating. It, anyway, yes. Yeah, I do remember that story, actually, now that you were saying it. I, I read um, your book about a week ago, but I remember after reading that, I have to tell you, Lisa, I'm like a little paranoid. I'm listening to everyone's language. And just last <laughs> night, I was a, I run a monthly book club. And, uh, you know, one of the ladies had said, and, she, and she's, you know, a little bit older, and she said, you know, if I die tonight, well, then I'll have said that I lived a great day today. And, you oh. know, because this experience was wonderful. And I even got to the gym this morning. Morning. And of course, I have your book in the back of my mind. I'm like, oh my God, is she going to die? I, I hope that she doesn't. But I kind of got a little paranoid about listening to people's language now. And, you know, like, could that could that be the last word, you know, that we ever hear this person um, speak? So, yeah. But, you know, that might be, I, I, that might be a, some more area of research for me to do is, you know, what is the difference in those phrases that are are premonitions um, and those that turn out not to be. I mean, I really, I wonder if there might be hints to what makes them different. You know, right. That, yeah. Yeah. Uh, another thing that I just wanted to let the listeners know, and you have a portion of it in your book, but people might want to go a little bit further, is the 2014 research study oh, at yes. the Center for Hospice and Palliative Care um, that really studied the end-of-life dreams and visions. Yes, they they did a fabulous study that just came again you know, recently just came out as you mentioned 2014, and 87% of the study's participants reported dreams or visions, and 70% of those had to do with reunions with deceased loved ones, and 52% of the visions had to do with preparing to go somewhere. So there's a very close correlation with what these visions and dreams are and the language that we hear. And oftentimes the visions appeared months, weeks, days, or hours before death, and they typically lessen the fear of dying among those who experiencing, you know, experience them, as we, as I had mentioned earlier. So, you know, this was an academic study, I think they had 500 subjects, uh, which is, you know, very, um, 
very decent sample, you know, an admirable sample. And and we've heard they're doing another phase of this research, and they're saying the numbers might even go as high as 80% in terms of people who are having dreams and visions at end of life. <clears throat> and last week I read an article in Scientific American, and when people are in a dream state and having, you know, REM dreams, there is as much brain activity going on as when we're waking. It's just in different regions of the brain. And that, to me, indicates, again, some kind of proof that there's uh, this the, about consciousness. Because if we're having these kinds of dreams and visions at such a high rate, then that means that our brains are being are active, right? We're having activity and high degrees of activity, and many times just days before dying. Well, how is that happening if the brain is dying, right? How is that activity sustained? So anyway, the research here at the with uh, at the palliative. Um, Center for Hospice and Palliative Care is very impressive and is really uh, complementary to the research that Raymond and I have been doing. Yeah, now I know that you said earlier that kind of every story that you hear is mind-blowing to you, and it's almost like you probably can't get enough of these stories, but do you have any in particular that really impacted you the most? Um, yeah, I have a few. I think the one that came from Minnesota from a minister about this young man who's 22 who had, um, I think it was cancer, a tumor, um, and was dying tragically at such a young age. And here's a minister who doesn't traditionally believe in reincarnation or anything, but he had this person who was just just on the verge of the of dying, and then he heard this young man talking, saying what I something you know what I had mentioned before. You know, I know, I know. We agreed on twenty two years this time. Okay, okay, and you know that was really compelling to me. First, because of the person who shared the account with me was someone who did not believe in reincarnation, <laughs> so for him, it you know it, he was really stunned by it, but. Also, it did really indicate to me um, that there might be something beyond uh, in terms of past lives. Um, also, just the, the stories of terminal lucidity, people who are completely unresponsive. And one gentleman shared this story where someone, his mother had Alzheimer's and then she was completely unresponsive. And then just one day, a few days before she died, she gets up and looks at him and tells him exactly where all the financial files are kept. Um, and, you know, he said in the third drawer down in the study, you know, in my files are all the financial uh, information you'll need to make it easy after I pass. And I just find that stunning uh, and remarkable. Um, so, oh, there's so, there really are so many things that, that, that surprise me and, and blow me away. Honestly, now one of the things that I'd like you to encourage our listeners is to keep a journal, and yeah. maybe you can talk a little bit about your experience with your dad and how you began journaling the things that he was saying. Yeah, you know, the, from the very moment that I saw it, there was a shift in my father's consciousness. He was completely fine. He was going. He had prostate cancer, but the prognosis was very good for him, and. Uh, just one night, he walked out the front door of the house in his underwear, essentially, at midnight, 
and started talking about the big art exhibition. When police came and found him, he started talking about the big art exhibition. He was looking for the gallery, and he was carrying boxes. And we didn't know at the time, but I came to realize that that was his big announcement, that metaphorical announcement that something was was coming. But um, so I wrote everything down from from that point on when I heard the things he was saying. And I think partly because I was trained as a linguist and I'm very word oriented, it was a way for me also to find some kind of comfort and reassurance in writing the things down and try to make sense of them. But the remarkable thing for me is as I wrote down my father's language, it gave me a way to sort of enter into his world. And that was really incredible because as I wrote things down, I, I, I found a new language and a way to communicate with him. And I'm very grateful for that. Also, what happened is months later, I looked back at some of the things he said. For example, he talked, used uh, the word green a lot and talked about this green dimension. And green emerged a lot in the final days because, you know, when you write things down, it's easier to see the patterns of things. And it turned out I was looking for a house. I was looking for a house to purchase. And it turned out that the place we found months later was on Greencrest Drive, right? Well, it could have been totally a synchronicity, but there was a sense, again, of being connected with my father because I had kept those final words and I could refer back to them. And there were also just beautiful things he said. One of the word, phrases was, there is so much so in sorrow, and I just thought that was such a beautiful way to express the kind of grief that he felt and I felt as he was leaving. So I'm so glad I kept those final words um, for so many reasons. But it was yeah. one. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, death can be, at least in our culture, you know, very hard, very sad. I, I feel like Westerners, we don't really know what to do with it. We don't have mm -hmm. great processes for it. Um, but this is also a way to get to get curious about it, you know, to not fear it. Um, like you said, to understand this world and maybe even, you know, receive things that ultimately, if you weren't really paying attention, um, you know, that there, there may be things and for people, you know, to hear or to, to maybe try to understand a little bit more, which is why I just really love this book. I think it okay. can give people a, a totally different perspective and how to kind of go through their own grieving process, but also the process of watching somebody die. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. And, you know, one of the things I say is that when we're with someone who bedside, who's dying, you know, we're both a tourist and a guide. Because, um, you know, we're, we have to be there for the person we love to some degree, if, if not a lot. And, and so we're both guiding them, but we're also a tourist because, you know, it's unknown territory, or at least in this body and in this form that we are, you know, here now, we haven't died uh, in this lifetime, right? So we, we, are, we are both foreigners, also guides through it. And um, and writing down, writing everything down does allow us, I think, to really see the new territory because it is a new territory. And what I've learned, and I learned through my father's passing, is it is sacred territory. And and to walk through it with a sense of wonder and curiosity, alongside 
the grief because the grief is real. I don't want to sugarcoat this or anything. The grief is, of course, real. But it is a very mysterious, mysterious territory, the threshold. And um, and if we can approach it with that sense of wonder, I think it can be healing for everyone around us. And many times our loved ones are seeing it with a sense of wonder. We hear so many phrases like, you know, like Steve Jobs, oh, wow, or, oh, it's so beautiful here. There's so many phrases of reassurance from those who are dying. Yeah, absolutely. And I probably should have asked this question a little bit earlier because I know we're beginning to wrap up. But wasn't there, um, and I don't have it, I think, highlighted and marked, but it was about the foods that people request. Yes. I know. Yes. It's, yeah, it's so interesting. And it makes sense to me because it's sort of our last, I mean, if you think food is something that's so connected to to living on the earth here, right? That's one of the things. So it uh, people very frequently ask for some kind of um, meal, last meal, uh, you know, a beer on the balcony. Um, it's very much part of the the ritual. And what's interesting is often when people are dying, one of the signs of dying is people lose their appetite. And yet in this window of time that's called like the sunset day or terminal lucidity, where there's this small window of time where people become lucid often, not always, but often, Many times they ask for food. So it is like their one last connection. My grandmother asked for chocolate, <laughs> asked for us to shave chocolate onto her tongue. Um, so, yeah, there seems to be a real connection between food and, and this earth. Yeah, it reminded me, my great-grandmother, she uh, always ate the Briar's strawberry ice cream. It would Ooh, be like yummy. the strawberries, <laughs> chocolate, the one that had the three. It was oh. vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry, but she'd only eat the strawberry. And, <laughs> like, this was her last moment of lucidity, and she was, you know, a spunky Italian woman and pretty funny. Oh. And, and so it was me and my cousin. And we were the grandchildren there, and she was eating her strawberry ice cream. And she, you know, of course, Italian, manja, manja, eat. Come on, taste, taste, <laughs> just take a little bit. She's saying, do you want some? And my cousin said, no, Grandma, I'm okay, I'm full. And she looked at her and she said, yeah, full of what? And we just busted oh, out laughing. Oh, and <laughs> it was so funny. But then, um, so that same cousin, which is my aunt who passed away um, about a year and a half, maybe two years, it might be two years this um, fall, same thing like you were saying happened. I mean, she was in this deep sleep. We're all surrounding her. We're like, this is it. She's dying. We're paying attention to her breath. We're waiting to hear the last breath. And then all of a sudden she wakes up. She's like, what are y'all looking at? <laughs> and, uh, and, and then she asked for ice cream. I think they had like coffee ice cream. So, and you know, my uncle was like, you know, D we're, we're really not supposed to give that to you, you know, because the death rattles going on the breathing. She could, you know, choke and she just looked at us she's like come on guys what's the worst that's going to happen I'm going to die you know and so I just thought it was cool that they both had kept their sense of humor you know yeah. their sarcasm and it was after that you know he had fed her and you know then she slowly went back to sleep and so just so interesting like yeah. you say that there's that moment of lucidity there's a request and an asking for food that I've experienced on two accounts you know myself um so yeah, so I, I had to talk about that because those were just some oh, stories that, that oh, the book reminded me. Yeah, oh, great accounts. And one of the things that I would like to end with, which was just beautiful, um, one one quote from the 
person from Hospice of Santa Barbara, Stephen Jones, and also something that you had said, which I think is really, really important for people to hear. One of the things that you wrote, you said, when you sit beside the dying, open your heart and remember that hearing is healing. As you listen closely, you may find that your beloveds offer you insight and reassurance, even in words that may, upon first hearing them, be puzzling. And I thought that really just wrapped up so much of what you were talking about. And then you had said that you reached out uh, to Stephen Jones through the Hospice of Santa Barbara just to get, you know, some, some words that he had about this. And he wrote to you and said, the dying need us to be exceptional listeners in order to be understood. The language of the dying is comprehended best when taken in through the gill of our hearts. Each syllable is sacred and should be received as a gift. And that's beautiful. You know, I guess I never really looked at what was happening in those experiences as as being a gift. But there really was. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So thank you so much, Lisa. Um, This was just a great interview, a great book. Can you let our listeners know where they can find you and a little bit more about the Final Words Project? Because I am sure that you are going to hear from a lot of our listeners. I I am assuming that there are so many more stories out there. This might eventually become your life's work, right? (laughs) You know what? It has become my life work, and I'm so grateful for that. I feel honored to be in this position. And uh, Raymond and I have the finalwordsproject.org, and there's a, there's a lot of information there. And so people can have the chance to go through and, and, and look at it. And um, so finalwordsproject.org, and we also have a tab where people can submit any stories or accounts that they like to, and they can do it confidentially. Um, and you can also just email me, uh, finalwordsproject at gmail.com. I just love to be in conversation with people. And Lisa, can you also tell our listeners where they can find your book? People can find it on most online outlets, such as amazon.com, Barnes and Noble, or or, um, my publisher, New World Library, or even at the Final Words Project website. Well, thank you for being a guest on our podcast. It was wonderful talking with you. Great. Thanks so much, April. If you'd like more information about our films or to purchase our DVDs, you can head on over to our website at thepastseries.com. They're also available to purchase on amazon.com. Our films are also streaming online at vimeo.com, guyamtv.com, and iTunes. If you have a show suggestion or would like us to interview someone specifically, please feel free to shoot us an email at info at thepastseries.com or send us a tweet at thepastseries. Please rate and review us in iTunes and subscribe. We hope you enjoyed the show.